Welcome to the Unconventional Path, Entrepreneurship and Innovation Stories and Ideas. Hello, I'm Balaam Usitz. And I'm Mike Wasserman. Hey, Mike. Today's guest on the podcast is Jenny C. She is the founder of Sipping Streams Tea in Fairbanks, Alaska, a tea company in Alaska. Uh, it's something I would have never thought about. And, you know, this is a great story uh, where she really took a passion and turned it into a business. Yeah, I love tea, Bela. So, you know, I, and I, you know, actually, I've never been to Alaska, so I'm really excited about this. I've been to all but, I think, four U.S. states, um, and Alaska is one of the ones I'm missing. But, um, but yeah, this sounds like a fascinating story, so let's get right to the story of Sipping Steam, Streams Tea. That's hard to say fast, Sipping Streams Tea, um, <laughs> and your interview with, with Jenny Tse. Hello, folks. Uh, today, I have a great guest, uh, Jenny is uh, here on the podcast, and she has a really interesting business in a location that's even more interesting. So welcome to the podcast, Jenny. Thank you so much for having me today. Yeah, sure. So let me ask you a question. If you're at a social event and uh, you get introduced to somebody at that social event and they ask you, uh, they say, nice to meet you, Jenny. What do you do? How do you answer that question? Well, I guess depends on what type of social event, but usually I say I have an award-winning tea company in Fairbanks, Alaska. Wow. So a tea company in Fairbanks, Alaska. Yep. And then uh, we've won, yeah, a bunch of international awards. So <laughs> I usually just tell them I have an international award-winning tea company, which most people don't know what that even means and that there's international awards for tea. Um, and then usually they get hooked on the Alaska part. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So uh, talk to me a little bit about the business. So, you know, how big the business is, what you sell, et cetera. Yeah. So my business is, well, I've had it for over 16 years. I'm the owner and founder. And I started it um, not because I wanted to start a business. My background is not in business at all. But um, what we do is we're a manufacturer, as in we create our own tea blends, and our ingredients come in from around the world. And then the local botanicals we forge and process in-house. So we blend and package teas. We're also a restaurant and a store. And two years ago, we started the first ever tea farm in Alaska, and it's the only geothermal power tea farm in the world. Oh, wow. Wow. So you actually bought, I, I don't, other than drinking tea, I know nothing about the tea industry. So you buy tea from suppliers around the world, and then you bring those into Fairbanks, and in your facility, you mix them and package them and do all those things that whatever you have to do? Yes, correct. So we're like, legally a manufacturing facility. So we bring in these teas from our different suppliers from around the world. We blend them, we package them, we put them, we even have our own pyramid tea bag machine. So we sell wholesale um, across the country and um, we sell online and we also sell here locally in Alaska. We actually do have a brick and mortar. So we do a little of everything. Wow. So we're, we started off as a brick and mortar then we quickly moved into wholesale because people wanted us to wholesale to them. And then I started winning international awards. So you can see like the, the evolution of the company just based off of what people wanted. And I found out I could enter my blends into competitions. Yeah. Um, my, my first international award-winning 
uh, tea was a blend with local fireweed and lowbush cranberries that my mom and I forged together. And so we're like, wow, if that's the first thing that we ever won with was was with local botanicals, I wonder like what else I could win. Yeah. Yeah. So that's great. So what's the name of the tea company? So if someone wants to get it, uh, what's the name and how would they get some tea? Yeah. So the name of my tea company is Sipping Streams Tea Company. You can find us online at sippingstreams.com. And if you ever happen to come to Fairbanks, Alaska as a tourist, stop on by. We'd love to meet you. Okay. And so we can buy it online. Uh, can I also buy it in some retail uh, locations? Yeah. So on our website, we actually have a map of all the different retail locations in the U.S. that have it. So we do have them just kind of scattered. There's not a lot down in, we call it the lower 48, you know, the rest of the <laughs> continental yeah. U.S. Um, and we also do sell on Amazon Prime, too. Just eight of our flavors, not everything. Yes. But everything definitely is sold on our website. Yes. So one of the things I, I always ask entrepreneurs <clears throat> is particularly when you have a product like yours, which which is not too big, right? It's it's easy to put in a package and easy to ship it with UPS or the Postal Service. Uh, how do you make the decision and how do you think about your various different forms of distribution, right? Selling direct, selling through distributors and selling through retail uh, establishments. How do you sort of analyze those and make the decision as to which ones are right for you? So for our, our e-commerce site, it's the same inventory that's in our brick and mortar. So we use Shopify, so it links it really easily. Mm. So anyone who comes and visits us. So we used to have a different platform where we had our e-commerce site. Like our e-commerce site was very basic. So we didn't put every single item on there. And then what happened was over time, because I have been in business for over 16 years now, people would say, but I was looking specifically for this one item that was in your store. Or we did pop-up events all over the state too. So we'd get, I wouldn't say complaints necessarily, but you know, suggestions like, or, or calls or inquiries for things that they didn't see on our website. So when we had switched to Shopify, it was so easy just to allow everything in real time. And that was like the next step was to have yeah. something that sell our inventory. Yeah. But then for our distributors or even for our wholesale accounts and even for Amazon Prime, we can't sell them everything. That's just too much. Like it's so you lean into your best sellers. What are people looking for? Because not only are you trying to make it simple for the distributor to sell, like my stuff is sold at Walmart, Fred Meyers, Target. I have like my top three teas that are the best sellers. And then it's based off of what they did was they surveyed their wholesale customers and they said, Do you think they want it loose leaf or in tea bags? What's gonna move the fastest? because it's all working capital that's sitting there. And if it's not churning, mm. it's <laughs> gonna like, I mean, in the end you just lose money if it's sitting right. there for a long time. That's so right. that's what we, we lean into is our best sellers of whatever moves. And even for our pop-up locations, there is no way we can bring our whole brick and mortar store to a 10 by 10 space. Yeah. So we're bringing our best sellers that we know will move over and over again. Um, and I, literally go through every time I do a pop-up location or another event, I look at the previous year's inventory and I project the growth of leaning into those bestsellers. Yeah. 
Yeah. You know, a number of years ago on this podcast, I interviewed a boutique coffee roaster. Uh, and uh, so I, I was, I'm thinking about that as you're speaking and some of the challenges uh, he had, and they're very similar, you know, about distribution and, and inventory it ties up a lot of cash. Uh, so from, from, so I imagine you buy tea in bulk and is, does it come in big bales or, and, and describe that process to me a little bit. Yeah. How do you source your <laughs> so tea? It depends on the supplier. So like places like in, you know, South America, they'll come in sacks, you know, kind of mm. like coffee comes in sacks. Yeah. Okay. Um, other places like in China, they'll come in a cardboard box. When I first started, things still came in wooden crates and that mm. was like, probably not as cost effective. So, you know, things over time have changed. Sure. Um, I'll get sacks from India, but there'll be paper sacks instead of that woven type of sack that you'll find coffee beans in. So it yep. just depends on the locations, but usually they're about 50 pounds at a time and we'll order, uh, we'll order a lot of tea. So we go through several pallets a year and just like, so I'm also a restaurant. So I'm a, a store, a restaurant and a factory in one. And just like the restaurant industry, you would want to diversify your menu based off of the ingredients you had, right? Like you don't want to make a certain right. item for that one thing. So any blends that I sell, I want it, like if I have a peppermint, peppermint's very popular, right? I can pick a peppermint yerba mate, I can make a caffeine-free peppermint blend, I can make a peppermint green tea, whatever is popular in peppermint, but I'm not going to use just peppermint by itself. Right. It, I don't know if that's a good example, but you know, like we want to use that ingredient to diversify. Right. Same thing with our green teas. We have about six different types of green teas. It's like some of them are bought and are a bestseller, just orthodox and plain. But the ones that are slow movers, we will want to combine them as like a blend. So it has more options to move that inventory out. Sure, sure. And when you get the tea in, do you have to process it in any way? Uh, or is it basically just blending it, mixing it, and packaging it? Yeah, so it's just um, basic manufacturing stuff is you inventory the stuff, you put it away, or you package it into the sections that you want it. Or we have a list, we have a manufacturing schedule of what's going to be blended sure. into what and what we need for what. So it's nice because usually, because it's a dry ingredient, we don't have to worry about putting them into a fridge or a freezer, like it's going to go bad. It has a shelf life of three to five years. So it. it's much more stable than even coffee would be where you'd want coffee to be fresher yeah. than that. Yeah. Very nice. Very nice. Now, uh, how do you, how do you sort of think about, uh, introducing a new flavor or a new blend? How do, how do you sort of, you know, come to the conclusion, Hey, we should try something new and see how the market likes it, then how do you test market it? So one of the products that we create, so we don't just do tea, we also do honey and hot cocoa mixes that we make ourselves. And so usually it has to do with someone has asked for something, but mm. not just one person. We start hearing a trend like over and over, or we have a problem. And when I say a problem, it's like a problem moving inventory. So let me give you an example of like, our honey situation. So we're here in Alaska. We have raw Alaskan fireweed honey. It's considered the champagne of honey. People love honey, but people do not like rock hard crystallized honey. And our honey is an ultra premium quality 
low moisture content honey, so it crystallizes really easily, especially in Alaska, because it's cold here. So when we saw this problem, every year in November, we've been selling honey for 10 years, and every year in November, we get a lot of like, like no sales of honey, because our mm -hmm. honey's rock hard. No one wants to buy it off the shelf. And then we even have complaints that something's wrong with the honey, which actually nothing is wrong with the honey, it's just cold. So we started creating creamed honey to fix that problem of helping that inventory move during the winter months. And creamed honey is not, doesn't have dairy in it. It's the way that we change this crystal structure to become always smooth and spreadable and accessible no matter how cold it is, unless it's frozen. So it's always soft and malleable, no matter what the temperature is, again, unless it's frozen. And so we literally just put them in some jars that we had, or I went to the grocery store, got some mason jars, didn't have anything fancy on it, put like an Avery label on it, started testing it for my direct-to-consumer market. And when we saw that it kept selling out over and over and over again, and the different flavors that we tried, um, because we thought it wasn't gonna be successful. So we, yeah. we priced it at some at the time, we thought it was some crazy price, because we didn't know what the market would yield. Sure. And so we're like, let's just, price it at this price and it sold out every time and so we're like okay the market can do this pricing it is profitable and now for us well my husband and i were the ones who manufacture everything we're like oh great we gotta make more of it and now we just have to like scale like making into bigger batches but when it, if when something we try doesn't become successful instantly, we know to not really try to push that thing. Yeah. And then also the other thing is though, we have so many SKUs. Okay, so we have like over, well, just the tea flavors alone in canisters, we have about 30 SKUs, which is a lot. So I am not allowed to create any more blends in another canister <laughs> until I've looked at my, my analytics to find out what our our slowest movers are and to clearance them out. And then I'm allowed to substitute them. Like in the team, like talking about our finances with our company sure. and, and capital and stuff. So we're like, okay, we've got to do our analytics. And then we're not saying less skews. We're just saying we're going to substitute it with something else. See how that takes off because it could become a bestseller. And then we just kind of like refine our, our skews yeah. that way. Yeah. Yeah, isn't it so challenging to stop doing something in almost any organization? <laughs> <laughs> I always thought that that was one of the hardest things is to stop doing something. Yeah. Yeah, well, and then it's okay to do limited runs or small batches, sure. but not to like buy, you know, whole runs of certain labels hoping and dreaming that you've spent like in something that's not going to move, like even just the label itself and designing the label. Yeah. So it's like, okay, let's make it not imperfect, you know, um Let's make it imperfect and just, you know, just make it as it is, move with it and see if people catch on to it. So you could do like limited edition runs or whatever, just to see what happens. Yeah. Yeah. So how do you, how do you think about marketing and, and how do, how do people find out about your product? Right. I think that's one of the big challenges for entrepreneurs these days as well. Uh, you know, just launching a website is great but you got to drive traffic to it. You got to drive interest. How do you, how do you think about that? Yeah. So when I started 16 years ago, well, before that I was a high school teacher. And so I 
taught a T semester long class. The school that I taught at asked me to design a semester long curriculum on T education. So that's actually how my business started was that it just evolved from one thing like demand and that's what I specialized in. And so with that T class, I started a website and my students put all the information like parts of their homework on there. So it was a T educational website. And then I was like, well, I might as well, people are asking about the stuff for sale. So I'll just put it on there, almost like a catalog for myself. So I yeah. knew what was on there so I could see it. And then I didn't, I personally hardly ever bought anything online 16 years mm -hmm. ago, but right. people who did, they would find us. So like, you know, early on, like the very beginning, I had an online store. Of course, it was like very basic and I had to figure out the shipping and people just pay through PayPal or whatever. But um, I think one of the biggest things, especially because there's thousands of tea companies and thousands mm. of coffee companies online, like yes. how do you break through the noise? Well, you're not here to pour in all of your capital into becoming on the first page of Google. You need to build your own tribe. Why do people follow you? what makes you special for your niche because you're not here to be the i don't want to say the starbucks of tea or, or but you know what i mean like where yep. you because also those people paid over the years millions of dollars to get to where they are so you can't just keep pouring all of your funds into marketing so people can find you because it won't have the immediate roi it takes time so in the meantime, you're building your tribe of raving fans and you have to make yourself special. If you don't have your own mission, if you don't have your own purpose, it will easily get lost in the noise. Yeah. So what what are some of the things that that you guys do to be special, to make you different, differentiate you from other tea companies? Yeah. So we specialize in tea education to help people grow to know who they are. Like essentially that's our mission statement. So tea education is how I started because I saw how tea education and people's conversations brought communities together, helped heal relationships, helped my family heal our own interpersonal relationships through community and through opening conversations. I was like, wow, this is powerful because remember my background is not in entrepreneurship. I had no idea about you know, finances or anything. Cause right. my passion was to make a bunch of money. It was to help people because of how I saw T heal my family and my community. And so with that, people just kept coming to me and saying, she knows about T, she knows about T. If you have any questions about T, ask her. And before that, my background was in sports medicine. So I was initially interested in T because of the health benefits of T and what it did and how it worked in you and your body physiologically. So, I mean, Yes, it works really well in the tea industry to be knowledgeable in that, but it was just kind of like led me into mm. tea instead of tea made me have to go research and everything like that. And so with my um, expertise and how I saw I could help my community, my tiny town of Fairbanks, Alaska, um, you know, volunteering, being like out there donating tea for like the arthritis um, society for a walk, like a certain type of rooibos that helps with an inflammation, being very purposeful of what I did and why I did it, that it I wanted to help benefit people and actually have an effect is really what you're going to need to lean into to have people, you know, come and find you and to also 
keep buying from you. So I specialized in education and then I wrote a book about tea. I already had a YouTube channel because I didn't know where to put all my tea information because yeah. people would buy stuff online. And I was like, well, you make the tea like this. And so I started a YouTube channel for Sipping Streams and I would just put all my content there to answer all the questions people had for me because it was the only way I could multiply myself. And again, a reference for my customers, myself and my staff that they could go there and look for instead of me having to teach over sure. and over and over again. So almost like a training module. Yeah, yeah, oh, very nice. Uh, let me ask you another question. Uh, how, do you, how do you think about hiring people, right? When you have to bring in staff, uh, production folks, whatever, uh, what's sort of the process you go through when making those decisions? So one of the things that I always did from the beginning was I just, I'm always hiring. You can never like not hire. Okay. So, because you never know when you're going to find the right person because people will come and people will go, especially in food industry, like we are. So we have a lot of people in that barista mentality who are just like, it's like their first job and then they move yes. on to something else. And so that will always happen. Not everyone wants to stay with you forever. I think the employee that I had the longest was for, like, for five years and that was it, you know? So, sure. um, so I need to know exactly what I'm looking for. And then on the back end, I need to know how I'm going to onboard them to make them the most successful. So a lot of times there'll be standard um, operation procedures like SOPs, but all the failures and you know staff like having to exit out, those are things I have on my questionnaire of when I'm interviewing them. I'm asking specifically for those failure points. Mm. Um, as a former athletic trainer in sports medicine, we're always trying to prevent something from happening. So I learned from my mistakes, which was many years of mistakes, and then I refined my questionnaire. And then we have them actually go through a lot of hoops. So we use the top grading technique, which is you're wanting to get the A players. So those who aren't willing to turn in their resume, even though I really don't need their resume, fill out their employment history form, I'm just going to be like, well, I guess they don't really want to follow procedures when they work for me because they can't even follow the procedures right. to get right. a job. Right. So there are there are boundaries that you'll have to learn in hiring people that you're like, OK, I'm just not putting up with this anymore. Like, and then you just refine your own boundaries like as a person, because in the end, even though you're a manager or an owner or supervisor, you have to have boundaries because you're not going to do everyone's work for them. You just yeah. can't. So. And as an owner, I'm paying technically my own because I'm 100% owner, though I'm giving them my money. You know, yes. I could either be paying myself or I could be paying somebody else. I have to have a team, though, if I want to scale and grow my company. Sure. So refining those boundaries is always important and documentation. So having a, a handbook or manual or whatever you're going to use to onboard the expectations for the staff are going to be really important, not just for yourself, but it helps guide the employee. So I take a lot of my techniques of when I was a teacher is I'm helping my staff learn how to be the best employee, just like I teach my students to learn how to learn. So they're learning how to learn at work and teach each other because I'm only one person. 
And so then we work more as a cohesive family. So a lot of philosophies that I use in at my work in my company are things that I learned when I was a teacher. Um, and I, I think that's a really good benefit because yeah. I understand that the employee doesn't want to do a terrible job. They're not always lazy. That's why you even hired them and gave them a chance to begin with because you believed in them. So instead of just writing them off, how do you elevate them? How do you yeah. give them the tools that they need? Excellent. Excellent. Yeah, I think those are some really, really good points. I, I appreciate you sharing them with us. So let's go back to the beginning. Uh, what was sort of the inspiration for starting this? Right? You were a teacher. I mean, you talked a little bit about the education site and the course you put together, but there must have been this day where you said, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to resign from my teaching job <laughs> and I'm going to jump in head first and do this. Let's talk about that process a little bit. Yeah. So, okay. When I started drinking tea my last year of college, because it was literally the cheapest thing on the coffee shop menu. <laughs> I don't like drinking plain water, especially if it's $2 a bottle. <laughs> I mean, we're in America, so like water should not cost that much right. money. Um, and so I was like, okay, I'll buy a tea. It's like a dollar, a dollar fifty. Okay, I'll buy a tea. So my friends kept asking me questions about tea because they thought I was a tea drinker. I mean, it's really interesting when, when you have a cup with a tea bag tag hanging out, like how many people just instantly go, oh, you're a tea drinker. Like that's different. But I was actually not a tea drinker. I've been drinking coffee since I was four. I was drinking it because it was the cheapest thing on the menu. So it prompted all these questions in my mind. And as an educator and an athletic trainer going through that in college, I would go, okay, how do I find the answers, right? I, I want to know so I can at least give them some direction or resource. That's very much like a teacher's mindset. So I'm working at the physical therapy clinic, still drinking, drinking like Lipton tea bags, okay, because that's what's in the clinic. And then again, that tag's hanging out. And all these um, patients of mine would be like, oh, are you a tea drinker? That's amazing. I wouldn't even say if I was a tea drinker or not. They would just start telling me their life story about tea, their personal experiences mm -hmm. with tea. Yeah. And I was like, oh, wow. It's like I'm in the tea club just because there's a tag hanging out of my cup. Um and so I started becoming more um, intimate with my, my patients, getting to know them better. And I was like, wow, that's crazy. Every time I drink tea, people tell me about themselves. And then the same thing when I worked at the school. And so kids would ask me questions like, what am I drinking? Granted, I'm still a newbie. I'm still learning about tea. And then it moves on to the parents. And the parents hear that I know a lot about tea, quote unquote. I don't. I'm just trying to answer people's questions. Yeah. So. Yeah. So then that's how the idea of starting like a whole semester long class on tea came about. And so while I lived with my parents after I moved back from college, um, and so I would just sit at the dinner table and talk about tea and what I was learning because I had to get ready, right, for school. Um, and so then my parents started telling me about their experiences with tea and their childhood. And I was like, whoa, this is crazy. My parents, my, my dad bled during the Japanese invasion when he was from mainland China to Hong Kong and my mom grew up in poverty too like she didn't have shoes until she was 14 dropped out of school and worked at a factory so my parents would never tell us about their past because yeah. it was too hard it was like faux pas to ever ask a question so once I started telling them about tea they started telling me about their childhood and I was like whoa this is crazy this whole tea thing's like really powerful yes. so People would tell me at the physical therapy clinic, at the high school, like, you should start a tea company. I'm like, no, that's why I work here. 
I'm not going to start a tea company. That means I won't be working here anymore. And then I went to visit um, tea farms in China one of the summers that I was working at the high school. And as I was on the phone with one of the parents, because it was a small private school, to put my paycheck in my bank account, we didn't have direct deposit. And I was like, oh, could you, you know, put my paycheck? I was literally handing my airplane ticket to the customer service agent. And um, they, anyways, the parents said on the phone, you're not going to have a job when you come back next school year because there's only five kids coming back and there's no way the school can sustain that few of kids. We're only keeping one teacher and we're going to have to let you go. So I sat in my airplane seat mm. and I was like, I guess I'm doing tea. <laughs> wow. Okay. Well, that's one of the, you know, if, if you talk to entrepreneurs, one of the, there's, there's always an uptick in, in, in companies uh, starting when, when there's a downturn in the economy. Or the other thing is when there's a, a personal change in someone's life. It could be, you know, you get married, you get divorced, uh, you lose a job, whatever. Those are oftentimes, um, I'll use the word inspirations, for starting your own business. So uh, that's great, it's a great story. You know, I wanna start uh, wrapping this up. Uh, is there anything that I haven't asked you that you'd like to share with us and, and, and uh, share with the audience? Well, yeah, I guess I would like to share that even though since the beginning of my business, people always saw me, quote unquote, as successful, there's different levels of success. And it's mm -hmm. always, based off of the individual's perception, whether it's a friend, another local business owner, yourself, success always builds and grows and evolves. And so finding the help you need, like I didn't know what SOPs were. I just knew what a manual was. I knew how to design, you know, curriculum. Um, and I didn't know how to hire people, but it's okay to not know what you don't know. And that's why we listen to podcasts like this, right. to hear other people's experiences, to grow, to be open-minded. Maybe we don't take everyone's suggestions. In fact, I, I recommend do not take everyone's suggestions, <laughs> um, but be open to think and analyze because when we are moving so fast to put out all the fires, we are ignoring like where something could be more efficient if that makes sense. Yeah. So sometimes it just takes that moment, literally like five minutes to think about your business, analyze it, just to take a moment to stop doing and just to think. And that's one of the most important things because it allows your mind to reset and to be able to be receptive of, of things that we're, we're not paying attention to. Yeah, well, that's a great, great way to wrap this up this podcast, Jenny. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. Uh, I do hope our paths cross again, and I really enjoyed our conversation. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. This was fun. Bela, wow, that was really interesting. What a great personal journey and a great entrepreneurial story. I mean, a true small business that um, kind of developed over time and really has grown into something um, that's pretty interesting and unique. What are some of the takeaways from your perspective? You know, this is this is a great example I think where the internet and international shipping and, and sort of the technology advancements we've made there uh, have, have made this possible that you can have this pretty small niche business, uh, but the world or large or many parts of the world 
are are your customer or your potential customers. <clears throat> and you know, 50 years ago, that really wasn't possible. Um, a, a business like this, you'd have to have in a big city, or you'd have to have it in in more of a, a, a an area where you know shipping and distribution works a, a, a lot more effectively as it did 50 years ago than the way it works today. Uh, so my point is that all of this, all of these opportunities like this exist because of this technology that's been developed, which I think is great, right? It, it makes it possible for, for you to be in om almost any place in the world and you can open up a business because uh, getting products delivered to you and shipping products out and promoting and advertising your products and services on social media and the internet are all possible now uh, at, at a relatively uh, affordable cost. So I, I think that's just great. Uh, I think the other part that I, I found interesting, right? What she's that she was asked to teach a course about tea, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? And and that course sort of developed into this business, um, which I think is really great, right? I love these kind of stories where 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 you're embarking down one set of tracks or going down one road. And and then that sort of evolves into something else, and and I reflect back on on sort of my life and other people I've known, that always happens, right? If if if, if you if you never leave your house, <laughs> then nothing will happen. But if you leave your house and you go outside and you you walk down this road or this path, you'll discover things along the way, and then you'll you'll interact with them, and it'll you'll change the path, which I think is. That's what it's all about, and that's what I get excited about, and 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 I think this is a great example of that. Yeah, I really agree. There were some really great kind of knowledge nuggets for new entrepreneurs or people thinking about you know launching a startup. We've got a, I think a lot of those in our listener base. Um, I really loved her. You know, the technical term for this is omni-channel approach, right? That you know she has a restaurant, you know, and a tea shop and a retail store, and then she grew the business and she grew to wholesale and she grew to to web and e-commerce pop-up stores, right? Which are all ways of reaching new customers and the way that they want to reach you at. So it's giving customers choice of how they connect with you. Um, and she, I like how she, you know, really was on top of the technology and, you know, people who are familiar with the Shopify platform, right? It takes advantage of your point of sale and your real actual inventory that is mirrored essentially in your e-commerce site. So it really helps you run all elements of your business in a unified way. There's other tech that does it similar things, but Shopify is kind of the main player in this space. Um, and then I love how she's using data. You know, she wasn't trained as a business person, but she really used analytics to optimize her in her inventory, um, to make sure that her working capital was at an optimal level, right? How much money is tied up that in the business you want to kind of minimize that number, um, and also launch new products, you know, um, she had a really cool approach to hiring and employee development that I think was really with, showed a lot of foresight, um, especially in an environment right now where people all over the world are having trouble finding and retaining skilled workers. Um, and, you know, I guess at the end of the day, it shows you can succeed even in what might seem like an unlikely place. She used what she knew, right? Like you said, Bella, she took her passion. Yeah. Um, she created this mission and was, was true to it and all the elements of her business, both bricks and mortar and online, and she leveraged what she had in her local uh, environment. She took essentially a commodity product and instead of selling single teas, 
right? She made these custom blends, right? Yes. Uh, that appealed to her customers' taste. And I love how she was using local and regional ingredients in these. This is a way to take, uh, you know, okay, am I going to buy Lipton tea or am I going to buy a Sipping Streams tea? And there's a real value in, you know, a hand blended or, a, a you know, something that's very thoughtful that goes well together. And again, getting this little bit of Alaska in your tea mug, right? It's pretty cool, right? It's a pretty yeah. cool concept. So yeah. I thought those were like four or five really neat, lessons for entrepreneurs, no matter what kind of field you're in, you're doing anything to consumer oriented. These were great takeaway points. What do you think? Yeah. I, I thought the other part that was interesting was she had this willingness to try new flavors. It's like, oh yeah, someone asked about this, or I read something about this, or I had this idea, try it, make a small batch and see if it sells. Right. This is one of those businesses yeah. where, where, where you can kind of do that. <laughs> and mm -hmm. that's kind of cool. And she has these various mm -hmm. different outlets to try it. So you don't have to commit hundreds of thousands of dollars to try out a new idea. This is one of those businesses where you can, you can try something and if it works great, keep, keep, make more of it and sell it. If it doesn't work well, okay, put it on the back shelf and maybe a year from now it'll sell, uh, or, or, or maybe it never will, but it gives you that opportunity to sort of experiment. And then I think what happens is if you do this, you become known for doing it. And, and that's one of the reasons this drives customers to you because you start developing this brand and reputation about having new things, new innovative things that you're selling and, and certain customers wanna want that experience, right? They wanna try new stuff. Uh, other people wanna drink the same tea all the time and they just want it the same, but other folks wanna try new stuff. And, and so build that into your brand. And, and this type of business uh, enables you to do that which I think is yeah. great. Yeah. And, you know, getting that direct feedback from her customers when they were asking her for certain flavors or asking her if she could do something and looking at those patterns, you know, that's the one, both the hassle and the joy of being an entrepreneur in the B2C space, right? Is that on one hand, you have to deal with your customers all the other, on the other, uh, all the time. And this can be time consuming and frustrating sometimes, but on the other hand, you have to deal with right. your customers all the time, which is great insights and it's sparking new ideas and seeing really fast feedback. And those are a great thing. So again, this kind of, when you're thinking about becoming an entrepreneur or a startup, you've got this double-edged sword of being close to your customer. Um, you, there's some price to that, right? In terms of the, your personal <coughs> time and you have to have a thick skin and all of these things, right. but there's also some really amazing benefits. And I liked how Jenny was really leveraging those benefits um, in terms of how she ran her business. Right. I don't know if you remember back in episode 55, we, we interviewed uh, Jim Jetson, mm -hmm. Jim Williams, coffee guy, coffee guy. Yeah. yeah. And very similar business, right? I mean, he was roasting coffee beans in the up in his garage. <laughs> yeah. Right. And he had various different channels. He, he, he sold direct on online. He'd go to farmer's markets and sell direct. And then he was in some retail outlets and he was in some restaurants, uh, you know, so they were serving his coffee and he'd try new flavors. He'd try out new things, see how it sells. So there are, I, I like these kind of businesses because it, 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 it enables you to have a lot of creativity in, in sort of what you do. Capital costs are not high. Uh, you can build a very loyal following. Um, and you know, it's, it, it's a sort of a fun business. Yep. Definitely. There's something for everybody, Bailey. You just have to explore it. And that's kind of why we spend some time doing this, um, right. is meeting these different people and kind of learning these different paths that hopefully others can learn from, um, when people are considering becoming an entrepreneur. Yeah, exactly. Wrap this one up. Let's do it. So listeners, All thanks right. for another 
interesting and exciting interview. We hope that you learned something today and found it at least thought-provoking, if not rewarding. Um, if you have questions about what we discussed today or any of the other topics that we regularly uh, touch on in our on our podcast, please please feel free to reach out to us. Our email is bela.and.mike at gmail.com. Hey, and if you like the podcast, uh, tell your friends about it. Uh, we'd love to get our listeners uh, and get more listeners. Uh, so until next time, signing off from upstate New York. See you all soon. And from here in Münster, Germany, looking forward to next time, Bela. Bye-bye.